it just began to uh, prod me, if that's the right word, uh, to ask the bigger questions. Well, why do we have a system like this? What's propping it up? How am I and are we reflected in it? I, I got to know the human beings behind these walls and they were some of and are some of the most eloquent, smart, compassionate people I've ever met in my life. You're listening to PIN America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, I speak with Damascus James, editor of Texas Letters, an anthology series revolving around lives spent in solitary confinement in the state of Texas. So today we're joined by Damascus James, editor of Texas Letters. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Malcolm. I'm really excited to talk to you about this project. When the book came into the office, we were all very excited. I mean, it's a very big book uh, and you have the original letters in there, the transcribed letters, and it just seems like a really dope project and a lot to learn about it, an immersive experience almost. So um, thank you for all of the work you did to bring this book to life and to bring more attention to solitary confinement. Thank you. Uh, no, thank you for, for having me and for helping, you know, bring awareness to it and to showcase these, these letters that are very, very important to me, but will hopefully become a catalyst for, for something down the road as well. So I think maybe getting started, if you can tell us what Texas Letters is. Texas Letters is an anthological work revolving around lives spent in solitary confinement in Texas, specifically at the heart of this journey. It's really the notion of the misuse of power. It's a collective work which explores loss of sanity, humanness, and oftentimes hope through the personal writings of a diverse and growing ensemble of people who have spent months, years, and sometimes decades within the bowels of these harsh and unrelenting conditions. That's the basic overview, but uh, it's really so much more than that. It's, it's an ever-evolving uh, project, really. Right. And to just paint a, a picture for listeners, I have volume one. Texas Letters, it's a almost 400 page book exclusively black and white how many letters are included it's around 30 there's 21 contributors in the book uh and and yeah 31 letters i believe and each letter there's a short introduction there's the transcribed letter that the person wrote and then we get a scan of the original letter when it's available there's a picture of the person so about 30 letters and 21 contributors. Some people wrote multiple letters and it's in order of when they were written, correct? Yeah, it's chron chronological. So yeah, chronological. the first letter was in June of 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, 
by a person named Aaron Striz, who spent 20 years in solitary confinement. And then from there was, you know, a, a consecutive series of letters by various people. And there was, there was never any limitation on how many letters uh, a person could contribute. It was as much or as little as they wanted to share about their experiences. We'll talk later about some of the specific letters and some of the specific people that are included in the project. But can you tell us a bit about how this project started? What was the inspiration? Um, what inspired you to do this? Yeah, project? of course. Yeah. Um, so to backtrack a little bit, I, I myself grew up in Vancouver in Canada. I moved to New York City in my early 20s to study film and theater. And in my early 30s, I moved to Houston, where my wife is from. And while there, I started writing to and visiting people throughout the TDCJ, which is the Texas Department of Criminal Justice System, primarily people in solitary confinement and on death row. The first person I wrote to was in general population. You know, people often ask, why was I incarcerated? Did I have family members affected by the system? I didn't. Uh, rather, it, it really came from an indwelt interest in getting to know people that are in communities that are hidden away, far removed from society. Uh, and often in these rural regions, it was curiosity really at the, uh, at the outset, a natural impulse to know and learn about those who are hidden away. And that was really kind of the catalyst for it. And from there, it, it, it became... Uh, uh, you know, over a pen relationship, it, it turned into the opportunity to go and visit in person, living in Houston. Houston's kind of at the center of the Texas prison system in many ways. A lot of the, the larger units are within an hour to two hours drive from the city itself. So mm-hmm. I would, you know, drive out to uh, Livingston, which is where the Polonsky unit is that houses death, death row. Um, they also have a, a large solitary confinement population as well. After time, it, it just became a realization that there was a need here in terms of people wanting to express themselves um, and vouch for themselves. Um, I think for the vast majority of people, and myself included, who haven't spent time in prison your understanding of prison is based primarily off of media, news, film, television, and you're not usually getting the entire picture. And this is what I quickly discovered after meeting these people in person and becoming friends with them was that there was there's so much more to the story than meets the headlines or what you're taught. So from here, it became a collective process and ideation period of, you know, how can we, how can we shed light on what's, what's happening? Um, You know, I I started to learn about their grievances and their, their personal trials and tribulations with, you know, the torture that is solitary confinement. Um, I began to learn how it's euphemized, it's rebranded, and yet it persists kind of un- uh, you know, abated really. Um, so that's, that was the catalyst for, for the beginning of the anthology. It was really with one letter and then it grew spreading by word of mouth within the prison walls, eventually evolving into this book that you mentioned, which is 392 pages and really an unorthodox anthology that really covers the, the gamut from a web of violence and complicity to racism. That's really entangled this statewide system, which, you know, is the largest in America. Um, and 
that's that's how it came to be that's that's amazing that that you wanted to learn more about this subject and you just did it and it turned into this really thoughtful project and you've maintained connections with the people who are included in it who was the first person that you contacted and how did you go about that did you ask someone if they knew anyone who was inside or did you search your people on the internet yeah there's a there's a large platform online called writeaprisoner.com and that's where i started and from there you can write to people incarcerated throughout the country in different states i specifically focused on texas being that i lived there and that's how it began. I, I wrote to a person named Mark to begin with. And then Mark was released. And, you know, I, I, I didn't hear much from Mark after that period. Um, and from there, um, I connected with Aaron. And then from there, Paul. Uh, and it went on and on like that um, over a series of weeks and months. It just began to... Uh, prod me, if that's the right word, uh, to ask the bigger questions of what, why do we have a system like this? What's propping it up? How am I and are we reflected in it? I, I got to know the human beings behind these walls and they were some of and are some of the most eloquent, smart, compassionate people I've ever met in my life. So it's it's been an eye-opening you know, pondering deeply and beholding and bearing witness to this, this pain and suffering. It's, you know, it's not introspection for the sake of introspection. I've always been really interested in, in just civilization. And also Dostoevsky once said, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. And the more prisons I entered in Texas, the more I, I realized how true this was. And and the more I, I learned, the more it became apparent that silence becomes violence and, and to not speak out about this or, or somehow raise awareness would, would be complicitness. And I just couldn't be a part of that. So by being an inactive and remaining mute, that's in, in essence what I'd be doing. So I, I thought of a way in tandem with these people of how could we share? Because they, they would mention grievances they were filing through the TDCJ process to help their situations, depending on what they're going through specifically, you know, most of them in indefinite solitary confinement for a variety of reasons, which we can get into and, and having no reprieve, no release from the suffering um, and really just stuck in us in, in a system that's set up for failure, really. And I, I honestly speaking with my, my wife who grew up in Texas, she was, appalled and, and had had no idea that this kind of atrocity took place in, in, in her home state to, to such a degree where people were locked in six by nine cages for 22 to 24 hours a day for 20 plus years, which in Texas, you have over 500 people who have spent more than a decade in this type of environment. Um, so it's been, like I mentioned at the outset, an evolving learning um, thing for myself. So it's, it's been an evolution. So some of the letters are, most of them are dated, if not all of them, but some of them I noticed have titles uh, mm -hmm. on the, on the, on the scanned right. documents. And now hearing that you, your process for how you 
contacted these people and how you begin to talk about different things and learn more about each other. Were you asking them to respond to a certain question or were you just telling them that you were putting this book together and if they wanted to contribute a letter, they could? Yeah, oftentimes I didn't reach out about the project. I, I really, the initial reach out would be a genuine, hi, how are you? My name's Damascus. I live in Houston. Uh, I'd love to learn more about your story and I can share about mine uh, if you're open to it. So a lot of the initial approaches weren't necessarily about acquiring more contributors or more writers. It, it was about getting to know more people. I wouldn't reach out uh, to prisoners solely on the basis of acquiring a letter or a contribution to the project. It was really an intentional and desire to get to know somebody. Um, and then if it organically came to be that they wanted to share their experiences through the project, uh, welcome to any contribution um, uh, at any time. And again, there was uh, no restrictions on word count or, or what right. they could say or what they could share. It was basically mm -hmm. an open book, so to speak, and a, and a blank canvas and, and, and they could paint with, with words. So um, yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to ask you to read a couple of the letters for us to talk about, but I, I now have a question. I imagine that this process of contacting a stranger, there's bound to be some distress maybe. Was that, was that at all a part of the process, gaining people's trust who, I mean, they don't know you? Right. Um... And oh, I'm sorry. The, the second part of that question was, were there people who did not respond so kindly to you? Um, you no, I'd, I'd say for the vast majority, to answer your second question first, the vast majority of people that I wrote to were honestly just so thrilled at the fact that a, a letter was was coming through their cell door um, that the, there was nothing but gratitude in their response which was fantastic I was happy to hear that the gentle expression of a, of a letter can mean so much to somebody so um, I, I never felt any animosity or had any pushback that I can recall uh, for the for the most part it was very respectful thankful and mutually curious again human beings from maybe different walks of life getting to know one another it was yeah it, I, i'd never had a bad experience uh with reaching out and then and then hearing back or not hearing back um it's 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 usually been mutually kind of on the same page which has been right. which has been great and, and really great mm. so just to give a an overview with so many letters and so many people a lot of things are touched on here um mm -hmm. everyone is in solitary so that's definitely of course the, the underlying theme but also right. within that you get all types of health related things so public health mental health physical health as you mentioned earlier a lot of the legal things, so people's court proceedings, the way they file a complaint or like a grievance. There's this one letter by Tedrick Batiste in which he describes his mom and his little brother coming to see him. She hadn't seen him in a while and she likes to bring him food, but the vending machine was broken. And so the first thing she says to him is, I'm so sorry, I couldn't get you any food. And he 
is like, I just want to see you. I'm, I'm not concerned about the food, but it's a very sweet moment. Um, and it's such a short right. letter that, you know, so we, we get things like that. Um, and because, as we mentioned earlier, the letters are in chronological order and some people write multiple letters. One of the writers, his letters are so clear and detailed <laughs> and he writes about this hunger strike that he is about to embark on with other people. And the last letter in the book from him is a few days or a few weeks before the hunger strike is supposed to begin. And so he's talking about being eager about it, but also his anxiety about all of it. So I want to ask you like what happened with the hunger strike and there's there's a history of activism within prisons in this country where people go on hunger strikes to advocate for themselves and the people who are around them. Um, yeah, so there's been a series of hunger strikes since this project began. In volume one, a person who's incarcerated named Aaron Striz, who's in solitary confinement for 20 years, they were set to embark on a hunger strike beginning January of 2022. And they did, in fact, do that at the Darrington unit, which is just south of Houston. That's now been renamed the Memorial Unit. Some seeming progress came from the hunger strike. And, and you know, hunger strikes are a very strange phenomenon in terms of in order for someone to be heard, that person stops eating. And, and so th there's been a, a number of these hunger strikes throughout the project that have kind of flared up uh, in an attempt to bring about change, to be heard. Um, that first hunger strike, which is in the volume one book, brought about, for Aaron at least, uh, a move to a different unit. And with grandiose promises, to some degree of changes that were going to happen, I stay in touch with him quite regularly. And unfortunately, a lot of those promises didn't pan out. Um, so a lot of the times when these hunger strikes flare up, there's this reactive side of Texas Department of Criminal Justice that is starting to see the writing on the wall in terms of media attention, that people are going to such extreme lengths to really combat this, this torture that's ongoing. And so there's little hints of reprieve that are thrown in to, to squelch or at least uh, calm the storm temporarily, but usually without any meaningful long-term effect up until now anyways. The most recent set of hunger strikes took place these past few months throughout, again, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice system. So it was various units throughout the system, including the All Red Unit, which is in Iowa Park in North Texas. And it's a prison where Roger Uvalle is. And it's the largest in terms of the most people in solitary confinement throughout that system in Texas. And Roger embarked on it with the intention of going until he couldn't go any longer. And um, he ended up losing 20 pounds getting very very sick in the in, in the process um and and during this time you know texas department of criminal justice was basically banning journalists from accessing the hunger strikers in an attempt again to suppress and and silence the voices of those that were you know trying to be heard at long last now with the texas legislative session in place there's a variety of bills that are trying to be passed to bring about reform specifically with regards to you know indefinite solitary confinement for you know, be it security threat group uh designations uh so that that means essentially there's hundreds upon hundreds of prisoners in solitary confinement in texas that are literally in there for no disciplinary infraction no 
violent outburst or anything like that, but merely because of having a, a gang affiliation of some sort or what's called a security threat group. So purely by policy, they are indefinitely in solitary confinement. So a lot of the hunger strike revolved around that and, and, and this uprising to hopefully bring about some change there. And the change is yet to be seen. The Corrections Committee has heard some of these bills be presented uh, by different representatives, but um, as of yet, nothing's been passed. So time will tell at this point. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the gang affiliation piece. Reading this book, you learn a lot about the different policies and things people have to go through to get moved to different parts of a prison or to get like a different status. Um, and so in addition to getting people's personal stories, their opinions, their feelings, you also learn a lot about the Texas prison system specifically through everybody's letters. So do you want to read one of the letters that are related to the hunger strike? Yes, I'd, I'd love to. So this is from Roger Uvalle. Roger's been in solitary confinement for 29 years, and this is his letter dated January 18th, 2023. I'm on hunger strike as of 1-10-23, eight days without eating, and I'll be going till I get sick. I'd rather suffer this way than to continue in the ad-seg restricted housing conditions that I've been in the past 29 years that has tortured me and caused irreparable damage physically and mentally. I'm classified as chronically mentally ill, CMI, but still held in ADSEG restricted housing conditions. No other programs are not available but for grad. That was what classification committee told me the last three times I've seen them. And the reason for that, they stated, is that they have me tagged STG, even though numerous times denied their claims. I've been case free for over four years. Since I've notified officials slash medical of my hunger strike, mental health has not come to check on my well-being, nor do they do their mandatory checks on us being on psych load. I had made demands to Warden Smith here at the All Red Unit. When I informed him of my hunger strike, I demanded to be released to general population or to one of the mental health program that is offered to the others that are not labeled as STG. I have had no response from them concerning my demand. Medical is doing the daily checkups since after my third day of hunger strike, taking my weight and vital sign and urinalysis. I'm still struggling with depression, anxiety, hearing voices. Medication they're giving me does not help. I've told that to the psych doctor, but tells me there's no other medication to give. This has been since March, 2022. I quit taking all meds and my mental illnesses have gotten worse. All I do is sleep all day, crying every other day, voices starting to get very bad with saying bad things that get me mad or more depressed. I'm shaky all the time. I hear voices of when I leave my cell, anxiety attacks, haven't been able to do anything. I was struggling to write this letter. I haven't written much since I stopped eating. I know there's a lot of people in this protest for prison reform to end this torture of being in isolation indefinitely. I pray for that reform and for a chance to regain a small portion of what I used to be before I was put in ADSEG and have an equal opportunity to the programs, mental health treatment, and privileges as everyone else in general population, especially contact visits with my family. Roger Uvalle, number 625717, All Red Unit. 2101 FM 369 North, Iowa Park, Texas, 76367. Oh, I've read the book, so I've, I've read 
a lot of letters like this, listen to you read it, it really sounds like a sort of like testifying or, or witnessing, like a declaring of what, what's going on. What is it like for you to receive letters like this, like so many of them? Yeah, um, it, it's, it, it's eye-opening. Every time I receive a new one, um, I'm learning more about this multifaceted system and world and environment. And really when I transcribe them and I'm actually punching their words into my keyboard or my laptop is really when I get a sense of uh, what they're going through, that what their struggle is. I'm, 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 I'm getting to feel, I'm basically duplicating their writing in their cell, but I'm doing it from my free world environment. And I'm, I'm literally trying to place myself in their shoes. It's, it's nearly impossible, but because so many of the letters I receive are so vivid and so detailed with granular detail, um, they transport me. And, and like you mentioned, they become testimonial. They become testimonies and timestamps, marking, chronicling the, the, the time and torture simultaneously. It's, it's, oftentimes even hard to to read these letters um some of them especially the longer ones i find myself having to kind of pause and reread and um you know just just to ensure i've read it right because the accounts are so horrendous and instances so beyond comprehension that you're almost hard-pressed to to, to, to just understand. Every time I get a letter that, that has Texas letters on the envelope, I, I know I'm in for something that's going to expand my awareness, but also hopefully test me in some way and, and open up even more empathy. I think, I think the more you learn, the more you can't look away. And now that a lot of these prisoners have, have gotten access to tablets and they have phone access from time to time, I'm getting an even more thorough testimony um, and, and experience. And, and, you know, there's times when I can hear people screaming in the background and you, and you get these guttural, visceral kind of sound and kind of auditory um, elements uh, that, that expand on, on the written word. So there's so many layers to the letters uh, that go beyond the page um, and that's really kind of been uh, the biggest um, and most powerful thing for me uh, personally. Yeah, yeah. I, I never even thought about that you're experiencing. I, I said earlier that we we get photos, we get the transcript, and we get um, the like photo of the original document. But you're also talking to these people personally sometimes, like through the phone or through a voice message maybe. And so you get several different types of letters. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. So do you wanna read one more? Yeah, I'd love to read one um, by Brittany Golley, who also goes by Zandan. That's X-A-N-D-A-N and is a female to male transgender who's been in solitary confinement for six years. Is currently at the Lane Murray unit in Gatesville, Texas. Um, and this letter dates from August 2nd of 2022. 
This is my second time being held captive in prolonged solitary confinement. From 2012 to 2017, I was held hostage and only after filing a 2254 habeas corpus against the executive director at the time was I freed. This time around, once again, I filed a civil suit in the Western District U.S. Court in Waco, Texas. Case number 622CV494, Brittany Gully versus Warden Audrey England et al. I hear the screams, I hear the cries, I hear the calls for help. Is it real or is it in the mind? Both. There are others screaming and crying along with me. I'm given dull razors to shave my face. I'm given panties, no boxers to cover my private area. As a F2M transgender, I am often targeted for taunts, ridicule, belittling remarks, crude jokes, and gestures. I have not experienced sunshine in almost a year. I have not had any human contact in almost a year. I'm deprived of basic human necessities. I love to read books, but I can only read in the daytime when daylight comes through the cracks in the walls. I have no light at night. I am succumbed with darkness, figuratively and literally. When I file complaints about these simple atrocities and the violating of my human rights, I'm retaliated against. I've been punched, kicked, spit on, and stomped in the skull after reporting abuse and bringing light to the corruptions in Texas prisons for women. I'm a warrior who has not given up the fight for justice and peace and freedom. It is better to be hated for what you are than to be loved for what you are not. I am my own. I can't be another's. These four walls squeeze out the soul, murdering the mind and spirit. How I survive, I do not know. Wow, these, these letters are so just rich. Hearing you read it, I am picking up on different things from when I just read it to myself, namely him saying he was kicked in the skull. What imagery to use instead of saying kicked in the head to be kicked in the skull. Mm -hmm. It's definitely more visceral, but also kind of more, I don't know if the word is not scientific, but there is. Yeah, there's an anatomical quality yeah, to it. Yeah, where it's um, almost like, this is like data. For sure, for sure. And there, mm -hmm. and there is, they, they become, I mean, yeah, that, that happens in a lot of these letters where you have these very physical um, depictions of, you know, how it goes beyond just the mental trauma and, and really affects physically the body, the vessel that, that carries their mind and is uh, subjected to, you know, beyond punches and kicks. Uh, you know, there's rape and all things you can imagine. And then it really translates into a lot of times self-harm, which is another anatomical kind of side of the trauma that's then released into a physical form. Um, so there's so many layers to the psychology, the physiology, all those elements. I guess my phrasing of it being scientific was kind of correct. Yeah. But at the same time, with letters like this, it's like kicking the skull, but also a few lines later, this very poetic language. And I've noticed that across so many of the letters that we receive at PEN America, you know, we get letters from prison every day, sometimes multiple times a day. We get right. letters dropped off on our desk. And just the poetry that's infused, I mean, letter writing is an art, but in these letters that are, like we were saying, part testimony, part like detailing, things that happen to these people on the daily. And there's this emotional 
of course, like you can't read these. I mean, some people can and not have an emotional response, but you know, it's just like in the very fabric of what they're writing about and how they're telling their story. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. What resonates with me a lot of the times is like you're talking about is there's this poetic quality that that permeates, you know, a lot of them. Um, and I, I think it's that, that there's this strange strength quality that comes out of the fact that they're they're writing these letters. The stakes are so high and just writing a letter. That's the thing too, is, you know, they risk retaliation. They risk some sort of backlash for speaking out against these injustices. So there's a beauty in that strength that I find uh, just so compelling and so inspiring. And that's what I, what I tell a lot of the, the contributors in this book is I just, I honestly, I just thank them for their, their courage to, put pen to paper or, or to type it out on their Swin tech typewriter, right. you know, and hope for the best, hope that it reaches some eyes or, or gets read aloud and reaches some ears. Um, so it's, it's a very courageous thing to do to put pen and paper in solitary confinement in Texas. I think you just wrapped it up so beautifully. <laughs> um, thinking that the writers who contributed to this project and definitely for being so vulnerable and, and sharing things about their life. So thank you for this work. Thank you for bringing these voices to us. And thank you for joining us for this conversation about this book. And I'm looking forward to the different volumes that come out soon. I mean, part of what I like about this is that these letters were written months ago and we, we have them so, so quickly. So, that's very commendable on your part. Yeah, thanks, Malcolm. Yeah, there's a real-time quality to publishing them as soon as they land in the mailbox. And then and then the plan is to continue to publish them in book form over the months and years to come. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'll definitely be on the lookout for those. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Malcolm. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by Malcolm Tariq. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's prison and justice writing team include Jess Abulafia, program assistant. Moira Marquis, senior manager, free write project. Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing. Robert Pollack, Prison Writing Program Manager. Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's pen.org slash works of justice.